Hello, this is Coming to the Mat, podcast from the Melanesian Women Today Impact Service Series. Told through the lens of everyday, ordinary Pacific Island women, the Mat series seeks to break cultural barriers and invite listeners to hear real human stories of making a difference. The stories you will hear from the series balance diverse interests and weave together the story of courageous women who dedicate their lives to making a difference in their communities and country. Coming to the Mat series is a safe space that allows for women in the Pacific to use their voices. It also explores the integral aspects of women's lives all across the South Pacific and gives the listener a window into the many different issues women face through storytelling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Coming to the Mat with me, your host, Dr. Mary Tarisovic. What if I told you that in today's episode, I have a very special guest for you who will provide invaluable insight into three pressing issues. Now, these pressing issues obviously concerns the Pacific and the country of Vanuatu. So we will be talking about Vanuatu and the Pacific. So our guest for today, I am thrilled to introduce you to Mr. Ralph Regenbano, the Minister of Climate Change, Adaptation, Meteorology, and Geohazards, Energy, Environment, and Disaster Risk Management for the country of Vanuatu. Ralph's expertise in climate change, economic development, and political sovereignty, which is the three pressing issues that we'll be talking about today will help us understand or give us a little bit of insight of the challenges faced by Vanuatu in the Pacific region. So we are really honored or I am really honored to have him on the mat with me today to talk about or to gain his insights on these three pressing issues. But before we delve into these topics of discussion, let's take a moment to get to know Ralph on a more personal level. What are the influences that shaped him? How did his upbringing and background in anthropology and development studies contribute to his journey? We'll also explore how traditional values of the Melanesian people have played a significant role in shaping Vanuatu's development and Ralph's diverse experiences as an, the first Ni Vanuatu anthropologist and the director of the Vanuatu Cultural Center and his various pursuits as a painter, illustrator, lawyer, and obviously politician, his current position as the Minister of Climate Change. So these are some of the areas of discussion that we will be having with him in order to understand a little bit more about his work. It's always good to get a little bit of a context about him and what were the things that inspired him to do what he's doing today. Now let's tackle these pressing questions or issues together. How does climate change pose urgent challenges in Vanuatu and the Pacific region? What effective strategies can we adopt to address these challenges? Ralph will share his insights 
and of practical solutions for achieving sustainable economic development that ensures equal opportunity for all. Now, his passion as a passionate advocate for political sovereignty was one of the questions that I had posed for him is how can Vanuatu and other Pacific Island nations assert the independence and autonomy in the face of external pressure? And this is a very vital conversation to be had because as we are experiencing or seeing or witnessing the geopolitics in the Pacific, it is so important for us to be able to have conversations like this that's happening, especially the geopolitics of what's happening right now between China and the United States of America. So Ralph will provide us with his perspectives and ideas on this crucial topic. And... We're also going to talk about the important role of traditional knowledge and practices in preserving the environment, and not just the environment as land, but also the ocean, and promoting indigenous sustainable development. How can we integrate this traditional resource management approaches with modern methods? So Ralph will also help us understand the importance of this and provide a, his perspective on a harmonious balance that would benefit Vanuatu's communities. And let's not forget the significant role of women in biodiversity and traditional resource practices. Why is their inclusion in decision-making process so crucial, especially within what Ralph calls the four legs of the community? And lastly, he will shed light on the essential role of international cooperation and collaboration in tackling the challenges faced by Vanuatu in the Pacific region, particularly in regarding to climate change and economic development. So I hope you're ready for an exciting conversation. It's going to be inspiration, but at the same time, it's going to be thought-provoking as well for us to think about. So join me on Coming to the Mat as we welcome the Honorable Minister of Climate Change, Mr. Ralph Reganvanu, to be able to story on with him and talk to him about his insights on this very three areas that I think it's essential for us to be having conversations around. So stay tuned and welcome to Coming to the Mad, everyone.
welcome Honorable Minister Ralph Reckenvanu to come into the mat. Before we delve into the topics of our discussion today on climate change, economic development and political sovereignty, please share a brief overview of your background, including your upbringing, academic pursuits in anthropology and development studies, and your role as the Minister of Climate Change in Vanuatu. We are truly excited to have you on the mat with us today and to hear your insights and experiences. Welcome. Okay, so my father comes from the island of Urupif on Malakula, and he was one of the first uh, people from uh, our community on Urupif to be educated to a higher level. I think he was the first one to get a, a degree from our island. Um, before he went to do his degree, he was at, 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 in training as a pastor at a Tangawa Training Institute. So in the early days of Vanuatu, when it was the New Hebrides, uh, almost all of the first educated people came through the church education system because it was the churches who provided education. So it was when he was at Tangawa Training Institute that he met my mother who came over to the New Hebrides as a missionary teacher um, to, to teach uh, uh, clergymen. Mm. And so they met at Tangawa Training Institute and got married in about 1967. And uh, sorry, in 1969, uh, they met in about 1967. And I was born in 1970. I was the first born of five brothers. Um, so I grew up in Port Vila. I went to kindergarten in Port Vila, did all my primary education in Port Vila at the um, British Primary School, which on independence became Central Primary School. Uh, in that period, uh, my father worked as uh, Secretary of uh, Education for the Presbyterian Church, which was uh, the dominant church in Vanuatu, along with the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. Um, but it was probably more predominant than either of those others. And then he was very, both my parents are very involved in the uh, anti-colonial movement, in the independence movement. And so I grew up in that milieu of them being basically independence activists. Um, and that, that whole environment of uh, anti-colonial struggle, um, and basically, anti-colonial struggle was termed in, in terms of us versus them and us being people of Melanesia who are custom and are from the place and uh, have a strong relationship to the land, that kind of thing. That was how the independence struggle was, or the independence movement was framed by the independence leaders at the time. It was in opposition to the colonial government. And, and the colonial, you know, the colonialists didn't have land; they were from the place, kind of. Thing. So that those that is how custom and land and all that stuff became accentuated. So that was, I remember at some points having in in, in the later nineteen seventies, about nineteen seventy nine and early nineteen eighties, when my father became elected as uh, one of the first uh, members of parliament elected by universal suffrage in the very first election. That was universal suffrage. Every everyone could vote uh, in late late nineteen seventy nine. It was around the time that I remember we were being um, 
you know, bundled off in the night in cars to places we didn't know with kids because there was danger of, there was a position that uh, uh, colonial forces would be coming with uh, malicious intent to harm the family and the kids and that kind of So that was all very exciting for us. We were very excited about moving around in the dead of night in a car, going somewhere we didn't know. Then we became independent and uh, things changed a lot for me. Uh, I was used to being, you know, very kind of, uh, I suppose you could say sort of uh, working class. And suddenly my father became a minister. Of, we moved into this cement anti-colonial house with uh, two toilets and in the toilets, these things, bidets, never seen one of those before, but like a total transformative lifestyle to um, becoming basically one of the elite mm -hmm. due to uh, being uh, uh, my father being in that position. And I uh, went to high school, started high school at Malakwa College, and then very quickly my parents uh, moved me out and sent me to Australia to boarding school. And so I spent most of high school and then all of university in Australia doing my degree was uh, development studies focused on political science um, and, and uh, development studies and anthropology. Hmm. So when I graduated, I was the first Nivanawatu to graduate with anthropology degree. Um, when I was at university, I suppose those political environment I grew up in was influencing me. And I remember I was part of a group in university, we decided to test the university elections to for election and association. Uh, and, and we formed a green alliance. And so it was the very first kind of environmental, environmentally aligned political group that ever control of the student association at the Australian National University. Mm. And I was part of it. I was a, a key member of that group. Um, so that was where sort of politics started for me. Mm. Came back to Vanuatu. At the time, there was a big transformation happening in the uh, Vanuatu Cultural Centre because there had been a decision that hold an exhibition to bring all the old cultural heritage items, Europe and Australia and the US, things mm. that people hadn't seen in generations in Vanuatu, to bring them back and show people. And because there was that intention of that exhibition, there was a need to build a facility, purpose-built museum to house them, just bring them back. The cultural center at that time, the museum was housed in the downtown um, building, which was built as the first of the advisory council of the colonial government. So it wasn't a purpose-built museum. And that, that's why I started working. But when I came on board, the government was expanding, uh, had this intent to build a new national museum, which France was to fund the building for the purpose of this exhibition of old artifacts from Europe. We're going to come back to Vanuatu. And so at that time, the, the budget of the cultural center was massively increased uh, so that we could prepare for this new museum. And there was a petition was advertised at the beginning of 1995, which was exactly the time I was finishing. And so I applied and I became a uh, curator of the National Museum straight out of 
pretty much straight out of university. I did an, I, I, I did come back the year before. I took one year off between my degree and uh, doing my honours uh, honors degree. And in that time, I worked for the Vanuatu Cultural Historic Sites. Every that was the time I went to North Pentecost, for example, to survey a cultural site with uh, old fellow Leona, Palombasto Dali, his father, and so sort of traped all around North Pentecost and many other islands. That was, that was the first time I got to really go to other islands and see the, and we, we surveyed sites. And so I got a good understanding of all the cultural heritage from uh, different areas of Vanuatu. Went back to ANU, did my honours degree, came back, became the creator of the museum and then worked there. Within a year, the uh, director at the time was convicted of uh, misappropriation. And so they put me in the position. I was sort of elevated suddenly to become acting director for almost a year. And then when the museum was about to open, they had to have a director. And so they just made me a director. And then I was director for the next 11 years. It was a big time in, in cultural heritage in the Pacific. We established the Pacific Island Museum Association. I was one of the ones who formed that. We also formed the um, uh, ICOMOS Pacifica. The ICOMOS uh, is the international body after sites. We formed the Pacific branch of it. Uh, we formed the Pacific Island Museum Association. We started the training up of indigenous uh, uh, museum personnel ran lots of training courses, that kind of thing. Uh, about halfway through my tenure as director of the museum, we were, Vanuatu went through the uh, comprehensive reform program in about 1997, which was the structural adjustment program for Vanuatu because the uh, government that had basically bankrupted the country, there was no money to party civil servants. ADB came in with its CRP, Comprehensive Reform Program, which is mm. essentially a structural adjustment program that all developing countries have gone through. Yeah. Uh, the same kind of things. You've got to cut the civil service. Uh, you've got to focus on bringing in foreign investors. That was when the countries changed from this focus on agriculture as the backbone of the economy to we have to focus on foreign investment as the way we are going to develop our country. That was when Vanuatu Investment Promotion Authority was established massive shift in the direction of mm. the country that from what the original leaders had decided back in mm. as as part of that uh the widespread leasing of land by the mm. minister of land without the consent of traditional owners uh without consent of the people who owned the land under under the constitution which said traditional owners owned it the minister of land started leasing out huge amounts of land especially on Efate, santo it started to and so our work in cultural heritage became about, well, you can't have culture and can't practice culture if your land is leased from under you mm. and you don't have access to the sites and the resources that you need for your custom. And started to focus as well on issues of land policy. Mm. And I remember the last number of this last few years, four or five years, when I was director, it was really starting to be much more advocacy about issues of what is development development can't be good development if it takes the way away from the people and that's the land is integral to the culture mm -hmm. by the time we finished we had managed to get the one of the last things happened when, when i was director was we, we managed to get the national land summit to happen mm -hmm. where all of these issues were discussed there was a national consultation there was the national land summit which put, put forward the 21 resolutions we have to protect the land with the laws blah 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 mm -hmm. 
I finished by that I'd realized that I need I need more weapons to fight this fight and so I one of them is law I have to go back to law school so I I job mm -hmm. at the end of 2006 I went back to USB law mm -hmm. school in Port Vila just to do my law degree mm -hmm. and so I was I was a student in 2007 at the same time I was still on the management of the cultural center so we continued to monitor where where the solutions were going we passed the 21 resolutions of the land summit the government had agreed to them the council of ministers had agreed that we will do this um, there was uh, funding provided by the donor australia mm. to help us to implement that program but it laws didn't change 2007 we waited nothing happened 2008 nothing happened mm. general elections were coming up in the second last quarter of 2008 me and the people around me decided well if the if they it's this like two years ago the government still has implemented even though it said it would we need to get into parliament to make sure these things happen mm. and they decided that i would be the one who would be going to parliament as the kind of the spear so i stood as a independent in port villa i didn't stand with any of the parties because all of the parties were part of this refusal to change mm. the laws on land mm. so i got in as an independent uh my very first parliament session i tabled the bills to change the land laws that wanted uh, to remove the power of the minister of land parties in government at that time were banaku party ump other parties so these are the main political parties they all refused to support my private members bill decided then that okay well obviously i can't do it by myself we need a party so we established the gr ground more justice land and justice which was okay. our primary objective okay got the parliament in and then we managed to do it in 2014 we we did the changes and now the system's completely changed mm. um we've privileged nakamals in terms of decision making and so on yeah mm. sorry rambling on there oh absolutely fine so thank you so much for giving us a, a brief introduction of yourself when it's good to know more about you know your background and where you are and how obviously your parents influence on your life growing up and your upbringing during pre-independence and onwards and so this is really good so now you are a the minister of climate change um so i guess uh, we're going to jump into our disc uh in questions uh in your view what is the most pressing challenge um the vanuatu and the pacific region are facing in terms of climate change and how do you think it can be addressed The most pressing challenge Vanuatu is facing in terms of climate change mm. is keeping our people safe, mm. safe from harm. Um, we have many communities now that are in harm's way mm. when we talk about the impacts of climate change. Uh, we saw that again in the twin cyclones that just hit Vanuatu in March this year, mm. where there were large-scale evacuations of people from the places they're living they had to be moved to different places to be safe because where they were living was not safe so our large challenge now is to make sure that into the future people are living in places that are safe to live in the government is investing in public infrastructure in those places and not in places that are hazardous to live in Investment in public infrastructure is hugely expensive, especially if you're talking about resilient infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You have to make roads that are 10 times stronger than normal roads, buildings that are 
cyclone proof up to category five cyclone standard. And so that is the biggest issue, I think, for climate change in the Pacific is that we have to make our people safe. They have to live, be living where they are safe. They have to have access to government services uh, that are resilient and can continue to operate. And there is the impacts of the multiple hazards that result from climate change. Another big issue, of course, is access to, which I include in uh, being safe, is just to good food, um, appropriate energy, uh, water supply, that kind of thing. So people can be kind of be assured that they they have a future that is um, friendly, and not a future that is full of hazard and uncertainty and danger. And so that's a that's a big uh, that's a big uh, thing to have to do to make sure that our communities are safe, that they uh, have access to the normal services you expect of a government in a situation of a nation state, uh, particularly education, health, mm -hmm. um, access in terms of infrastructure. Mm. And so that's where we have to go now with, with climate change. We know that the effects of climate change are just going to keep getting more severe. We're going to have continue to have more severe impacts in terms of, uh, um, of course, cyclones and other hazards. Uh, uh, you know, huge rainfall events with resulting landslides, earthquakes, volcanoes, all this kind of thing. Um, we need to make sure that uh, people are kept out of harm's way and that they are allowed to raise their children in a, in a situation in which they can be assured that uh, there, there is a level of safety. For their for their future, so that's mm -hmm. really just like uh, an overall view of what what the impact of the main um, the challenge for us now is in terms of uh, going forward in terms of a context of increasing impact of climate change. Hmm. Are you passionate about empowering marginalized women in the Melanesian region of the Pacific? Join us at Melanesian Women today and make a real difference in their lives. As a member, you will have exclusive access to a world of benefits. Connect and network with like-minded individuals who share your passion for women's empowerment in Melanesia. Seize leadership opportunities and help shape the direction of our organization by joining our esteemed board of directors. Attend educational workshops and events that focus on critical issues facing women, such as gender-based violence, economic empowerment, and political participation. Immerse yourself in social and cultural celebrations, showcasing the rich diversity of Melanesian culture while building meaningful connections. Your voice matters. Give us feedback and contribute to our strategic planning process, ensuring our work remains relevant and impactful. But that's not all. As a member of Melanesian Women Today, You'll also gain access to ad-free episodes of the inspiring Coming to the Mat podcast. Join us as we delve into the personal and professional journeys of remarkable women from Melanesia and beyond, uncovering their successes and the challenges they've overcome. Becoming a member is simple. Make an annual tax-deductible donation of $25 or more to support our vital work. By joining us, you'll become a part of a vibrant and passionate community committed to creating a better future for women in Melanesia. 
Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Together, let's empower women, inspire change, and make a lasting impact. Visit melanesianwomentoday.org forward slash member and become a member of the Melanesian Women Today community. We can't wait to welcome you to our community. And uh, what is your vision for economic development uh, in Vanuatu, perhaps the Pacific region, and how can it be achieved while ensuring sustainable and equitable growth for all? The most important thing in the, Vanu in the Vanuatu context is continuing access to customary land. Mm -hmm. That is a foundation that will ensure sustainable and equitable development if it's done according to customary rules and laws. Mm -hmm. And that is something I've been very involved in in terms of changing the laws to um, prioritize customary law, to prioritize collective decision-making, to try and ensure through the laws, for example, that um, when decisions are made about leasing, uh, all sectors of a customary owning group have to have a say, including uh, the less privileged uh, women, youth, so on. And so enhancing that system so that people continue to have somewhere to access, uh, have, have food gardens, um, access materials for building houses and that kind of thing. That is all of uh, one level of what the future sustainable development of Vanuatu is going to look like. Do you have an issue like all countries with increasing urbanization? And that is a huge challenge for us. Mm -hmm. um, in that context, the state has a much larger role in ensuring that people have access to safe areas, as I've talked about. Mm -hmm. or, because a lot of uh, the unsafe areas you are finding now in Vanuatu are in the period areas around the main cities. Mm. Places like um, places like Pepsi in Luganville, Black Sands in mm -hmm. uh, Port Vila, mm -hmm. uh, places where people are living marginally. Mm -hmm. Because they don't have good access to uh, traditional land, that don't, don't have they don't have access to the Western system of leasing. Mm -hmm. They're living in marginally on the on the fringes, and so there's a bigger role for the state. And that's one of the big things I'm involved with, Minister of Climate Change, is trying to yeah. find. Uh, since I began minister a few months ago, we've set up what we call a durable solutions task force, which is trying to look at um, this issue of providing people uh, mm -hmm. secure access to land. So mm -hmm. that they feel comfortable to invest in resilient housing, that kind of thing. Um, it's a big issue we are facing with urbanization. Mm -hmm. So we need to also ensure that we elevate the development of rural areas through provision of renewable energy, through provision of good infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, good services to kind of mitigate that urbanization trend. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting, for example, when I went up to North Pentecost uh, in, in uh, February this year, we launched the, um, the hybrid uh, hydro solar system at uh, Loltong, Latano area mm -hmm. to see that, you know, people, uh, it greatly improved lives of people by having access to, you know, electric kettles to boil water rather than having to make a fire in the morning to have breakfast with, mm -hmm. um, washing machines, um, carbon grinders and then set up a sort of sustainable system of management for those systems mm -hmm. to ensure sustainability. Uh, so there's that level of basic 
service delivery and uh, in terms of how people live in communities in rural and urban areas. In terms of economic development, I think um, it's important that we don't think that we are ever going to get to a first world standard because that's not mm. possible and it's not desirable. Mm. Um, it's not in any way sustainable in our area of the world and it's not sustainable for the planet and that's why we are in this planetary crisis. Mm. Um, but we need, we have to be smart in how we, in how we locally determine development on our traditional lands by communities that remain intact but at the same time, we're able to access very high level of uh, services in terms of uh, particularly health, particularly health and education. Uh, that's a big challenge for us. And I think another key thing that has happened in Vanuatu, of course, is, um, and it's something I've been advocating for since I ever became a member of parliament, is uh, a level of political reform to allow us to um, make decisions uh, that the public interest much more than we see now coming out of the current system we have, which I think is not necessarily always in the public interest and sometimes it's very anti-public interest. So we need mm. to change that system of decision-making as well through through political reform. Mm. And I and I hope that we're gonna see some, we've been on that this year because this coalition government was really, that was our number one priority was to get some political reform happening. Yeah. Mm. So as a um, champion of political sovereignty, what steps do you believe Vanuatu and other Pacific Island nations should take to assert their independence and autonomy in the face of uh, external pressure as we currently see happening? We do have a high level of uh, sovereignty as nation states. Mm -hmm. And we can see that in the, um, the current geopolitical situation between the US and China, right? I think many Pacific Island countries that are, are able to play that quite well mm. in terms of, you know, using that geopolitical struggle to get what we want for our people. Right. But of course, it will be improved if we improve the decision-making process um, because, as, as I previously said, the political decision-making process is not necessarily the best. We need to improve the way in which we uh, have uh, a... a elect maybe elect leaders who can make the right decisions for for the people that are in, in the public interest mm -hmm. and also i think there's a uh, we have to be very careful about strengthening regionalism of the pacific island region mm -hmm. through the pacific islands forum uh, the pacific island forum regionalism is very important for the pacific island countries because we are all very very small countries mm -hmm. um, but as a group that looks after the interest specific as a whole we are all part of this one huge ocean mm -hmm. um we regionalism is also very important because so i think in terms of uh enhancing our sovereignty the two things i would i would mention i would mention political reform to improve the way we make decisions in mm -hmm. our countries and then improving regionalism so that we can work better as a region to respond to the threat from outside the region or the challenges that we are facing as a region mm, very interesting now this is my favorite how can traditional knowledge and practices be integrated into modern conservation and sustainable development in Vanuatu and the wider Pacific region okay so just to say that modern conservation doesn't work we know yeah. that um, okay only only traditional resource management works and this has been a huge outcome from 
the um, Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework that came out in December, suddenly mm. the, the world recognized that it's Indigenous people and local no communities mm. tree that yeah. have actually done the most effective conservation more than these Western forms. And so in Vanuatu right now, as the as the Minister of Environment, we are now embarking on a um, program which hopefully will be finished by the end of the year. We are going to uh, reform our environmental legislation to uh, recognize and enhance and promote natural uh, resource management as the basis of how we deal with protection of our own um, and sustainable use environment. Uh, we have traditionally managed our environment in Vanuatu for hundreds and thousands of years is very effective and that's why our environment is so intact mm. and we're going to try with this legislation and our process of consultation to amend our our uh, environmental protection and conservation act okay. so that it is able to much much better support the communities who are the guardians mm. of this environment and this territory and uh, one of the things we're introducing this year is a system of uh, so far at the moment we're calling them rangers of basically funding people in community mm -hmm. uh, to uh, assist the communities to understand to be able to use to blend uh, to to co-manage using western science and traditional knowledge in a way that enhances the traditional resource management practices uh, encourage the retention of the practices that work well mm -hmm. um, and work with the government on issues such as um, um, making sure that in areas of where there is a potential for critical biodiversity loss, mm -hmm. we can address it in a way that is uh, affirming of the community's management styles and where there are challenges that arise through, for example, one of the big challenges now to uh, to environment in places like uh, Pentecost, for example, is uh, planting cover, right? Yeah. Excessive cover, clearing of forest to plant cover. Mm -hmm. How can we address these challenges right. and, and get the community as a whole, recognize it and find ways to address it from the community level in a way that they can. And um, we're seeing now in, in Vanuatu is increasing awareness mm -hmm. of uh, the need to effectively conserve um, natural biodiversity mm -hmm. and uh, we're seeing many, many 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 communities coming up with solutions mm -hmm. and it's up to the government to recognize what they're doing and support them to right. do that right. and, I, and I and I see for example in the last couple of years um, a large network of uh, cons uh, conservation areas being established community conservation areas being established in West Coast Santo for example mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, in uh, next month in June I'm going up to Gawa to, for the government to recognize the traditional protection that has been there for generations around Lake Letas, wow. the biggest lake mm -hmm. in the South Pacific. Right. Um, and just recognize that and say, look, the government will support the chiefs mm -hmm. and the community of Gawa to protect it. And we will uh, input resources, financial resources, uh, technical support to assist the communities to better manage uh, according to their own, um, you know, whatever they want. Yeah. And so I think that's the approach we're going to be moving much more towards, and at least under my leadership uh, uh, in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, can I just throw in just a little bit of, um, what do you see the role of women in all of this? 
you being the Minister of Climate Change and you went to speak of biodiversity and traditional knowledge and all that. What do you see the role of women in all of this? Well, women are, of course, the, the main users of the main resource managers in the communities. They're the main users of biodiversity. Mm. Um, they are the main people dealing with impacts of climate change. So they're always at the front line. Mm. But what's important is that that needs to be recognized in decision-making structures. And a lot of the time it isn't. Mm. And so I think the, the current um, uh, governance structure that we the government is promoting, which is a very good one, mm -hmm. is uh, promoting local area councils oh. as the unit for governance mm. in the future of Vanuatu. So we have like we have about seventy-two local area councils at the moment, mm -hmm. and more and more we're going to try and make them these local area councils. Uh, basically, uh, they exist as. Uh, governance units under the provincial governments initially there were local area councils established but more and more we're going to have to align them with cultural areas mm -hmm. so a, a local area council is one language one culture mm -hmm. and this is what we started doing with the customer land management act that i introduced is mm -hmm. is talking about cultural areas more and more make that unit uh, a local area council is a cultural area so for example uh, you know more about Pentecost, have, you know, North Pentecost local area councils, Central Pentecost, Southern Pentecost, which is what they have now, right? They have mm -hmm. uh, three different area councils, which roughly equate to cultural areas. Mm -hmm. And in those local area councils, you have, uh, the council is in fact made up of a, a representative of chiefs, a representative of women, a representative of youth, a representative oh. of the churches, a representative of the private sector, and sometimes, depending on the council, representative of people with disabilities. Mm. So that unit having that requirement for this is the council. It has these representatives of all the legs of the community. We call them, I like to call them the four legs of the community, chiefs, mm. women, youth, and church. Mm. Plus, of course, private sector is one that they always want to be in there as well. And have that as the decision-making unit. And the government is now employing area administrators who are public servants. It was the first area administrators were recruited by the Public Service Commission. Mm -hmm. But now there's going to be a, a policeman mm. in each area. Uh, climate change and disaster response officers mm. in each area council as well mm -hmm. to work with the community on building resilience and responding to climate change. And so this becomes the hub for, and all these area councils become like connected uh, to satellite, to internet. Mm -hmm. uh, services are offered at that level. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's the future trajectory for development of Vanuatu. Mm. Provinces become more and more irrelevant, basically. It's mm. an artificial kind of um, thing that, you know, people in Pentecost, they don't want to go to Saratomata to access services. They want to access it in their own area. And, and that's what's going to happen. And that's the way we're going. Okay. De-emphasize provinces, emphasize local area councils, make sure oh. so that all services of government mm. are available at local area council level. There are public mm. services there to help people. Mm. The local area council decides on its budget each year. Mm -hmm. And the government provides a budget each year to the local area council. Uh -huh. And so the local area council, and so this is the system that's already working, it's already rolling up. Mm -hmm. But uh, for example, the local area council decides like next year, we need to cement this road on this hill. Okay. We need to build a new classroom for this school. Mm -hmm. And then the government provides that budget. And then the area oh. administrator is the one who helps in applying for it and acquitting it. And he's employed okay. by, by the government for that purpose. Okay. So yeah, that's the, that's the model working on it. And through that model, we hope that um, 
the voices of these different legs of the community which I'm talking about right. are represented in that decision making. Okay. And so all the women choose their representative to sit on the council, which is the decision making body. Mm -hmm. But we, we, we hope, of course, that that will go down into um, lower than the community, uh, the area council, but that's really something that's a work in progress for the communities to work on. Okay. So finally, a question for this interview with Mr. Rob Rockenbanu is what role do you see international cooperation and collaboration playing in addressing the challenges facing Vanuatu and the Pacific region, particularly in the areas of climate change and economic development? So Vanuatu has been um, structurally disadvantaged mm -hmm. by global world development. Yeah. Uh, you know, this logic of underdevelopment, we've, we've been through the colonial period where, you know, massive resource extraction, depopulation, uh, our, our economy has been skewed towards coconut plantations and we're still on that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we've been, you know, a least developed country just graduated to developing country status a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the same dynamic exists with regards to climate change. We are a country that has contributed 0.0001% of emissions, yet we are the most climate vulnerable country in the world, uh, the most disaster prone country in the world, according to the United Nations. Uh, so this is nothing to do with what we've done. It's to do with what the developed country has done. They've uh, countries like the US uh, have built their economies on extraction and subjugation. Mm -hmm. And so we just want some justice, you know, in terms of, and, and that is what the development agenda is kind of supposed to be premised on. It's about mm -hmm. developed countries helping less developed countries mm -hmm. uh, with their development. And it's what the whole climate change process is based on as well. It's about uh, a green climate fund, which developed countries contribute to assist least developed countries who are becoming the victims of something they did not create themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we want that justice dynamic uh, and that history to be recognized and appropriately um, dealt with in terms of us receiving development assistance to help us build our resilience, build this resilient infrastructure that I'm talking about, which is probably the main cost that we are up against, building a, our human resource resilience. Mm. Uh, and th this recent um, initiative of Vanuatu to get uh, an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice mm. is a bit of a recognition that um, there isn't, I mean, even though we are, countries in the world are saying it, they're not actually really meaning it and not committing to do it. Mm. So, for example, the Green Climate Fund that was agreed to in Paris has never, ever reached close to what it should be, uh, mm. despite the country saying this is what we should do and we are going to do it. So we need to, we are trying to find ways to make this happen. Mm. Uh, we have been talking and talking for many, many years, yeah. but we need to see more action and, and fulfillment of that pledge, we can say, from developed countries to provide development assistance you know, there's this figure in uh, that's always talked about. I think it's 0.7% of GDP should be given as foreign aid. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a figure that is rarely met. Mm -hmm. uh, the Global Climate Fund is really, it's ne has never reached the amount that uh, countries said it would, would reach. And so we have to just continue to 
say that, but then also find other ways to make it happen. Mm. And um, one of the ways, of course, is by utilizing new new alliances that emerge, the geopolitics that emerges. Um, you know, if if the West isn't going to give what they said, let's go to China. You know, let's mm. go to India. Let's go mm. to let's find other ways to achieve what our, our development aspirations that um, we know uh, as part of the overall international United Nations framework. We are entitled to, and people say we are entitled to, but we don't see it actually happening. Mm. And so we just continue to push that line, I think. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for your time for uh, interviewing uh, with me on this podcast of Coming to the Mac. It's been a pleasure getting to know a little bit more about your background and what you're doing now. So I wish you all the best and a safe flight back to Vanuatu. Thank you, Mary. is created and produced by Melanesian Women Today, a non-profit organization. Please visit our website at www.melanesianwomentoday.org. That is all one word. Melanesian Women Today envisions a Pacific region where every woman, girl, and child in their respective communities in Melanesia lives a productive, healthy, and fulfilling life. We are on a mission to improve the well-being and quality of lives and also to promote and improve leadership in women and girls in their communities. Please consider making a donation today on our website to support our work. Thank you for your support.